Dear brethren, I bring your attention back to Titus chapter 2 on this Communion Sunday. And this will be our fourth teaching on the topic of the behavior of Christ's body. I trust that in the previous three teachings that the backdrop to what Paul instructs Titus to share with the church in Crete has been made clear to you. The idea of the behavior of Christ's body has to do with the fact that since the bodily ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, it falls to us who are now believers and who go by the name of Christians, which is to say that we represent Christ to the world. And now the behavior that we arrive at becomes in a very real sense the behavior of Christ's body that people see. So when they see you and me, they see something of what we're witnessing to, and we're effectively saying, this is what Jesus would do. Now, you recognize with me in putting it that way that that is a very high calling. And so it stands to reason that there is very direct scriptural instruction given for we who gather as the church of Jesus Christ so that we can be trained into how we should comport ourselves, how we should live our lives, so that indeed we are witnesses for Jesus, that we continue to do and teach the language of Acts chapter 1. We should continue to do and teach what Jesus began to do and teach. Well, I refer you to the first three studies if you are somehow coming across this fourth study without the benefit of the first three, so as to gain a fuller backdrop for what we're going to deal with today. But on this particular Sunday, I'm going to bring your attention to the first two verses of Titus chapter 2. The first two verses primarily. And we are going to come to a specific class that is going to be addressed with respect to the behavior that is expected out of this class of believer. Now, you recall with me in previous studies, we established that there are six classes that are addressed in Titus chapter 2. We will see, and it will be our focus today, that first of all, the elder men are addressed, the presbyteros, the aged men are addressed. Secondly, the aged women are addressed. Then thirdly, the young women. Fourthly, the young men. Fifthly, the minister who is bringing forth the instruction. And then sixthly, those who are slaves or servants find themselves in a capacity in life in which they have to relate themselves properly to their boss or to whoever they are obliged to. That's the principle. I want to bring you to the first two verses then of this very important section of teaching for the church of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with Titus 2 and verse 1. Paul tells Titus to speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. As we have pointed out in the past, the word translated become is the word prepo. And the idea here is that if you are a Christian church, 
and you espouse certain doctrines, you're known for having a set of beliefs. You have a belief system called Christianity. If that is the rubric under which you live your life, then you need to have behavior that is fitting, that is in keeping with that teaching, lest you bring reproach on the Word of God, on the message of the Christian faith. So that's the idea here. It's not speak things and keep talking until you arrive at sound doctrine, you know, the things that eventually become sound doctrine. No, the idea is, as it is translated in one version, communicate the behavior that goes with sound doctrine. Now, this ought to strike all of our hearts, brothers and sisters. This is just straightforward Christian teaching, which is to say that if you espouse, once again, certain concepts and ideas, you believe that God is the creator, you believe that Jesus is the redeemer, you believe that the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, you believe that there is only one way to eternal life, and you believe that there is hell, and you believe there are demons, and all of the system of Christian doctrine, then you need to have behavior that is also instructed from the scriptures, so that you're not just walking around telling people what you think is a better way of thinking about various ideas in life, but at the same time, while they're watching your behavior, it isn't compelling, it isn't like giving, it isn't like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this is very important. And then we come to the second verse, which begins to address specific classes within the churches in Crete. Now, of course, this would be applicable to any church setting. We read there that Titus should speak to the aged men, and he should instruct them to be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and endurance. Now, here again, while we're taking this in, Let's remind ourselves that even within the following verses, we have the argument that undergirds why these exhortations need to be given to the various classes. Say, for example, in the third verse, we're not going to be looking at the aged women presently, but we are told there that they are to comport themselves in a certain way. They are to have behavior that is exemplary of a holy lifestyle. You see, women need to have a holy testimony in order to please God and represent Jesus properly. And then in the fifth verse, we are told that young women need to conduct themselves in a certain way. And notice the last phrase in the fifth verse, so that the word of God be not blasphemed. Is that not clarifying for your hearts and minds that the argument here is if you have sound doctrine, which is what is assumed in verse 1, you have healthy doctrine? Well, you need to couple that with a healthy lifestyle, with a healthy set of behavioral patterns in order to truly represent Jesus. He isn't here any longer. But when Jesus was walking around in his body, the behavior of Christ's body when he was on earth was 100% in 
in agreement with the teaching that he espoused. He lived up to what he preached. He modeled what the Christian faith is all about. And brothers and sisters, God is calling us to walk in his steps and to develop and to mature into him in all things. And therefore, it is not at all the case that the Christian church does not address the behavior of its members. We are to be narrowing our lives and purifying ourselves so that we don't bring reproach to the very gospel that we represent as being a Christian church. And so in verse 10, while he is addressing the servant class, specifically, the principle applies in every class that we need to learn how to live as Jesus would have us live. We need to be reflecting on our behavior, our attitudes, our tongues, our responses, um, the things that we get involved with, all the different activities we do, we need to be reflecting on our behavior because our lives are to adorn the doctrine. We are not just to have doctrinal ideas that we can speak and tell people about. We had some testimonies today at the beginning of our meeting wherein various members shared how they were able to talk to others about the truth of Jesus Christ. And so you can reflect on yourself now in this teaching. Is it the case that through the rest of the day, through the week, when you see those same people, does your life adorn the doctrine that you are representing to people? This is what the idea is. Now, what I want you to see is that the aged men are instructed with several terms that are close to synonymous. That is to say, they all sort of group around a central thought. And we can use the very first word that is translated in verse 2, this adjectival word that is translated sober, nephalios. The aged men are to be sober. They are also to be grave, semnos, temperate, Sophron, sound, hugiano. But when you think of those various words, they all sort of give the same thrust. And for our study this afternoon, we're going to focus on the idea of sobriety, that the aged men are to be sober. And we're going to think about what that means. But before we do, I want to point out to you something very interesting, and that is that this concept of being sober, while it is directed first to the older men in the church, it is also brought to the attention of all the other classes in one way or another. And so you see, for example, that in verse 3, we are told, and very interestingly, look at the way in which this reads, the aged women... Likewise, likewise, they are to be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine. Isn't that a call to sobriety? Not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Now, even though the word sober is not specifically used when he is addressing the aged women, 
the fact that he uses the word likewise shows us that they are to follow the example that he just gave to the aged men. You are to be like them, likewise. Now, that brings up a very important point that we will be revisiting in this study. But the point is, is that the elder men are to set the example so that then the elder women can follow their example. And then this will work its way down into the young women, the young men, even the servants. And so at the end of the day, the point is, is that every class is called to sobriety through one way or the other. For example, the young women, they are called to be sober. The Bible tells us that they are to be sober-minded. And then the young men, verse 6, they also are called to be sober-minded. When Paul addresses in verse 7 and 8, he says, In all things showing yourself, showing in yourself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, then he says gravity, gravity. That shows us that when he is addressing the minister who is giving forth these instructions, he is to have gravity. It's the same term that is used about the older men when they're called to be sober, grave, semnos. Then it's used again in the seventh verse. And then we have Paul's word to the servants. They are to be obedient, hupotasso. That idea involves the thought of sobriety and controlling yourself and um, being serious-minded. In other words, you need to make sure that you're walking faithfully and controlling your behavior as it relates to your employer. For the most part, the principle would be applied today. And so what I'm saying to you is every single class is exhorted to sober-mindedness, to be sober. And so this study is going to be entitled Sobriety for All. Sobriety for All. Now, as I said, there are several Greek terms that are used to bring forth this idea of sobriety, gravity, temperate, being sound, etc., etc. But there's a particular Greek root that captures the essence of this family of words, and it is the word nepho. It's the root from which nephalios comes from, which is the Greek behind the word sober. Let the aged men be sober. And I want to read to you what a lexical definition of nepho is, and it is the following. Nepho is the opposite of intoxication both in the literal sense of intoxication with wine or an alcoholic beverage, as well as in the figurative sense of states of spiritual intoxication attributable to other causes. And so we're establishing right at the beginning of this teaching that the call to be sober can apply both to the classic concept of not having alcoholic beverages either at all or certainly not to excess. We'll maybe touch on that as we go forward. But it also is speaking about 
being sober in a figurative sense, not being intoxicated in other ways in your spirit, in the way you conduct your life. And that, you see, is something that we all need to pay attention to. Now the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, using the same word, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Dear brothers and sisters, someone who just simply confesses Jesus to be their Lord, but lacks taking seriously the exhortation that Peter gives us here, doesn't walk with a sober mind, a sober vision, a sober outlook on life. The language here is be sober and be vigilant, be watchful. Because you still have an adversary, even when you claim Jesus as your Savior. The Bible doesn't say when you come into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you no longer have an adversary. In some respects, maybe the adversary becomes more pointedly against you once you get saved. And so it is necessary, you need to be exhorted to be sober. A Lutheran preacher of old makes the following remark. He says, Christianity lends balance of mind to all its members, old and young, men and women, and fortifies them against all flighty deceivers who would unsettle them. Here again, I'm establishing, dear brothers and sisters, that this call to sobriety, while we certainly need to see that it is first addressed to the aged men, and as we minister this word, we do want to call out the aged men in particular. And we want to establish as a principle of teaching in this church that aged men must be exhorted to be sober, to be free from the intoxications of alcohol, as well as to be free from the intoxications of the spirit in order for a church to be healthy and strong and to develop well and for the proper attitudes and ways of thinking about doing Christianity to, as it were, work its way down into the rest of the members. The aged men need to be charged to be sober, to be grave, to be temperate, to be sound in the faith. But we're seeing that all of us need this exhortation. I recall shortly after I was saved, back in 1981 sometime, that I was gathering together with the saints at the time. We were meeting in a basement, and we were mostly praying at that uh, season. But in any event, I remember being in the meeting, and, you know, we shared testimonies in the meeting as we do now. And I just had it on my heart, because it was so vividly impressed upon my soul as I'm there now among the people of God, right within them, praising the Lord, worshiping alongside of them, and remembering how reckless and how pointless and how frivolous and nonsensical my life had been. I could digress and tell you the testimony of the situation out of which I got saved. Several of you know, or I suppose all of you know, that I've had three brothers that have taken their life. I just share that with you as one litmus of the ways in which my life also faced all sorts of struggles and difficulties and challenges. And I came out of that chaotic situation, and now I was walking with the Lord Jesus. I'm a new believer, and I recall giving the testimony that I thanked the Lord 
for giving me common sense. I mean, that's exactly the words I used. And it may have sounded strange then, and it might sound strange to you now, but not in my spirit, because juxtaposed against the way I had been living, and even now that I was just only briefly in the Christian faith, but having the love of the Father on my life and seeing people's lives around me that were more orderly and then receiving teaching that was helping me to sort out up from down, right from wrong, sweet from bitter, etc. I realized I may have been partying and having fun, quote unquote, in the way that I thought I was that ended up, you know, destroying some of my brother's lives at that point. You know, two of them were earlier than the third. But in any event, what I'm driving at is that I realized that I had no common sense. I was a reckless, wandering, unregenerate. And I'm saying to you that it is so true that Christianity lends balance of mind to all of its members when you truly embrace Jesus Christ and His Holy Word. Now, why do we all need this? Well, you don't have to go any further than the very epistle that we're reading to get some good exhortation as to why we all need this. We're told in Titus chapter 3 and in verse 3 that all of us, whether you're an aged man or an aged woman, a young woman, a young man, a servant, we're told that all of us were sometimes, one of the translations say, once we too were, (laughs) once you also were foolish. Now, if you're foolish, you're not sober, disobedient. If you're disobedient, you're not sober, deceived. If you're deceived, you're not sober, serving diverse lusts and pleasures. If that characterizes your reckless life, you're not a sober individual, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. If you can't control your emotions, if you're given to fits of rage, you're not a sober individual. And the Bible tells us that once we all were this way, And now that we're believers, now that we confess the Lord Jesus Christ and we come to God's house and we worship the Lord, then the Bible is saying that the ministry needs to exhort its members, starting with the aged men. We are obviously hopeful that the aged men are already walking in this sobriety and that they can just give a hearty amen to the exhortation. But We know that as it was in Crete, that not all were given to this proper behavior because some were, you know, as he says, evil beasts, low bellies, always liars. They weren't walking in the behavior that becomes Christ's body. It wasn't adorning the gospel and manifesting the radiance of Jesus, even in the church or in the home. And so the Bible says the aged men need to be exhorted to move away from this foolishness, this disobedience this deception serving diverse lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy hateful and hating one another that's not sober living the bible tells us brothers and sisters that when the grace of god that brings salvation comes to your life this too is in titus it happens to be in the second chapter the very one we're reading and In the 11th verse, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to men and it instructs us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And then what? We should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present age. 
And so, brothers and sisters, sobriety is an exhortation for all. If you've received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that brings salvation, it doesn't just say, welcome into the church rolls. It doesn't say, let me dunk you under some water and then go your way and live as you please. If you're welcomed into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, truthfully, it comes with an impact in your spirit. It comes with an internal teaching instructor named the Holy Spirit who teaches you to live soberly. But we are going to deal with the men first because that's the way we read it in Titus chapter 2. Once again, let's read it and then dig into it. But speak thou, that is Titus, the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in the faith, sound in charity, and in endurance. Now, I want to point out that the need for sobriety is brought to the attention of the aged men right from the second word of this English translation. Because Paul tells Titus to speak to the older men what they need to hear. And if the older men are not in control of their emotions and their reactions and their view of themselves, why, if they come to church and they're literally intoxicated then they're not going to be very receptive, are they, to the exhortation that Titus needs to give them. They probably won't even hear it. Or if they do, it'll either stir up foolishness in their hearts, because when people get drunk, they tend to either become more foolish or more violent. So they'll either just laugh it off, or they'll get angry and hot under the collar and perhaps start heckling the pulpit. But you might think no one would come to the church intoxicated. Well, it has happened in the past, but I agree with you. That's obviously should be a very unusual exception. But what about coming to the church and not being sober minded, not being tempered in your dispositions, coming and being intoxicated with the estimation of yourself such that you can't receive the exhortation of Titus? One translator makes this very point. He says, Paul categorizes distinct groups, you know, aged men, aged women, etc., as needing particular kinds of help. That's why you come to church, to receive the help that God wants to give you, and he ministers it through his minister. That's why we're called ministers. He brings it to you through his ministry. He goes on to say, this expositor, he begins, Titus does, with the older, presumably more mature members of the congregation. Older men, he says, must be taught. Some older men will not allow others, especially if they are younger, to teach them anything. They think age alone is sufficient to carry them through. Few things are more tragic than to see an older man or woman still tenaciously holding to opinions which have been proven faulty over and over through the years. Titus is not to let age become a barrier. He must teach older members of the congregation as well as the younger. And so there you go, dear brothers and sisters, before we can even begin to get into the work of the Lord that helps us to 
have behavior that become sound doctrine. Have you ever seen an older man that can espouse all the right ideas, but the behavior of that individual is not becoming and adorning that doctrine? Well, if that ever happens, then what the churches need is to exhort their older brothers. And by the way, older is relative. If you're male today, this is addressing you. If five years ago you were walking with Jesus because you're at least five years older. So it's a relative idea, but I don't want to take away from the focus of thinking about, you know, the very identifiable older men within a church situation. And these are principles for the church of Jesus Christ today and going forward. As you'll see, as we work through this teaching all of us need to hear this instruction so that we understand how a church should conduct itself. And so, dear brothers and sisters, before we even get started in the project of hearing what God has to say to our lives, we need the older men, especially, to set the example of being receptive to whatever God's ministry has to say. And it doesn't matter how old they are, how well they dress, how well they speak, how long they've been in the faith over against you. You know, these things as such, they aren't the determining factor. The factor is whether or not that man is sent of the Lord to share the word of God to you. And really, even deeper than that, though certainly those who stand in the pulpit should have a definite call, I completely, you know, advocate and stand for that. But I'm just going to add that no matter who it is, if they're bringing the word of the Lord to you, then we need to be receptive. We all need to be receptive. The same expositor that I just quoted a moment ago, now turning his attention more directly to the word sober, we are to exhort the older brothers to be sober. Well, he says this, the following. He says a level-headed or sober person is one who is not intoxicated with the world's stupefying wine. It is one who has been sobered up by the coming of the Holy Spirit into his life so that he is able to understand and do those things that please God. I trust you see with me already the blend of application that we're using in this study because this idea of sober-mindedness, as our expositor states, it is the prohibition against the world's stupefying wine. But that applies to not just the wine you can get in the liquor store, but it applies to the vintage that you can be distilling in your own spirit. The vintage of your exalted view of yourself and your opinion and your liberty and your will. You can be fermenting inside and intoxicating yourself so that you're not sober in the house of God. As a matter of fact, I want to stress to you this thought that the Christian faith has both promises and prohibitions. There is no such thing as receiving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ only in its promissory aspect. Because the gospel never comes to anybody any lost soul. It never comes to a lost soul and says that I'm going to throw you a lifeline in order to facilitate 
in order to assist your sinful lifestyle and give you a carte blanche concept within your mind that now that I walked an aisle, raised my hand, maybe got water baptized and said I believe in Jesus, I don't have to worry that much about the prohibitions of God's word. Allow me very shortly here to make my case, though it's a case that you should be well familiar with, and it's on more of the topic of just what is the gospel message itself. But Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Okay, so that might sound like, if you want to come to Jesus, that's pretty much all there is to it. You think in your heart, I want to come to Jesus. I don't want to live the way I was yesterday or the day before or the week before. I want to come to Jesus. And maybe if you read John 6, 37, and you take Jesus as saying, if that's in your heart, it must be the Father that's working in your life. And if you come to me, I'll take you in whatever way you are. And that's just the end of it. Well, even there, that's not the end of it. Because Jesus said, you will come to him. You won't go back to the world. You'll come to him. And he said, I will not cast you out. But he didn't say that everybody that claims to come to Jesus doesn't go back to their vomit, doesn't go back to wallowing in the mire of their former life. So you can't take that verse and think that it's all set just because you have an idea of coming to Christ. Or once upon a time, as we see so much in confessing evangelicalism, we see this concept of you just make a confession in Jesus and with respect to having your life and your behavior addressed, well, that's sort of extra credit. That might even be legalism. That's not the essence of what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is just the beautiful ability to say, I came to Jesus. I have a sinful lifestyle. I left at least a little bit of it behind. You know, the parts I didn't want anyway. And I came to Jesus and now I just enjoy the Lord. I enjoy this music. I enjoy this fellowship. I enjoy the coffee. I enjoy the cookies. I enjoy being able to have friends that will look after me and help me with my bills and whatever. But I haven't stayed with Christ. I haven't continued to walk with him. I didn't come to him and stay with him. I went back into the world. I'm saying to you that the Christian faith teaches promises for salvation that carries with it prohibitions about staying in those shark-filled waters that you've been rescued from when you were drowning, lest you be destroyed in the end. So, for example, Jesus did say, and this is a wonderful gospel message in Matthew 11. You know the language. Come on to me, all you that are laboring under sin, laboring, trying to carry the weight of living life on your own shoulders with your own ideas. He says, you feel that burden? It's crushing you. He says, come on to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. And once again, I'm stressing to you that this idea that you can just come to Christ, walk an aisle, raise your hand, and then rest. And that's the beautiful promise of the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, anything beyond that, anything appreciably beyond that, any call to holiness, any correction of your life, any prohibitionary teaching is to bring a pall 
That is to say, to bring a darkness and to bring a dourness over the Christian church. And it's no wonder that maybe the seats aren't filled because you don't leave people just in the freedom of being able to say, I had a reckless lifestyle. I labored under certain experiences that I wanted to get out from. And I came to Jesus and I said, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. And then I just sort of continued to wander around and sort of do my own thing. But I sure have a restful heart in all of that because I may be a bad sinner, but I'm different than those other sinners out there. At least I know to say the name of Jesus and say he's my savior. No, Jesus said, you come to me for rest, but here's the rest of it. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. When Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler, we're told that Jesus looked upon this man and he loved him. You would think that would be enough, right? If Jesus looks on you and loves you, you might think Jesus looked on me. I really believe. Brother William was preaching the gospel or Brother Joe or Sister Sally was preaching the gospel in some context. Maybe I went to one of those Christian concerts, quote unquote, and someone after they got playing their really emotionally charged, rhythmic, virtually rock song or whatever and stirred up my emotions and they shared a message and they said that Jesus loved you. And in that very moment, I just felt so emotional and I, I, I felt so truly that Jesus was there and he said that he loved me. Well, Jesus loved the rich young ruler. And you know what he said to him? He said what every sinner wants to hear. Initially, a straightforward, uncomplicated direction. Come, come. You want a savior? I'm here to save. Come. But then Jesus himself said, take up your cross and follow me. Brethren, I want you to understand, there is no gospel message. There is no offer of salvation that ends with come. He said, come and follow. If you come and you sit down and you have a meal and you think that the two of you have agreed that you're saved, and then when that little happy time is over, you go off and you rise up to play, but you're not following the Lord. That's not the salvation message that comes from Jesus' lips. And you know, that might disappoint you. It disappointed the rich young ruler. He went away sad. You know why? Because he had something dear to his heart that he didn't want to get rid of. In other words, he didn't really need to be saved. That's the, that's the point. I have something that's so important to me, I can't give up to follow Jesus. Well, I guess you don't need to be saved desperately enough to follow Jesus alone and do whatever he says. I guess you're not really lost. You've got a lot of money or I don't know what else you have, but you don't want to give it up. It's sad that you couldn't bargain with the Lord. He was sad that he couldn't bargain with the Lord. Well, we could give you many examples. I'm trying to make a point that's relevant to this study. And, and we address the elder men in particular. When you enter into the Christian faith, you're supposed to come and follow Jesus. Not come, join a church, have the benefits of religion, and do your own thing. Now, I know that these prohibitions are thought to be puritanic. They are thought to be legalistic. They are thought to be killjoys and that range of things. It's not unlike, though I'm not suggesting that I would support a restatement of the 18th Amendment that established prohibition in the United States between 1920 and 1933. But some of you will have some idea of that era, that there was an era of prohibition when the sale and 
of um, alcohol, theoretically the consumption of it too, but at least the production and the sale of alcohol was constitutionally outlawed. In fact, there was a saying that went around during those days, which was the following, every day will be Sunday when the town goes dry. Every day will be Sunday when the town goes dry. Well, I'm bringing up the era of prohibition, number one, to sort of set that before your attention and to remind you how restless and how agitated those who liked their intoxicating beverages and lifestyles were during that period. Now, I didn't live through it, but I can read about it. And, you know, they went through all sorts of conniptions to protest the fact that they just couldn't get their alcohol whenever they felt like it. I'm going to leave aside the social commentary of that whole period and I'm not going to digress into that at all, apart from just bringing this statement to your attention from someone who lived during that period, a general by the name of John Joseph Pershing. Now, I recognize that name, though I didn't know the quotation that I'm about to read. But I remember the name of General Pershing. He was a notable general in World War I. And perhaps even more importantly, though what he accomplished in World War I was definitely very notable, but he was also the mentor of many of the World War II notable generals like Douglas MacArthur, like Omar Bradley, like George Patton, like George Marshall, and Dwight Eisenhower. This is a man's man, if you don't mind my telling you it that way. General Pershing, this is what he had to say as it relates to prohibition. It's something like in the social sphere, we could say, you want the benefits of being a citizen of the United States? You want the promise of the American dream? It comes with some prohibitions, lest you ruin it for everybody. And so General Pershing had this to say, banish the entire liquor industry from the United States. Close every saloon and brewery. Suppress drinking by the severe punishment of the drinker and the nation will find itself amazed at its efficiency. I shall not go slow on prohibition for I know it is the greatest foe of my men, greater even than the bullets of the enemy. You might fear the bullet when you go into battle. He's saying, young men, older men, you should fear shooting yourself while you tip the bottle down your lungs or into your esophagus or maybe both. You see, what I'm saying initially here, now that's prohibition against obviously literally alcohol. And that is very much a part of what the exhortation to be sober is. It's absolutely including stay away from intoxicating drink. Dear brothers and sisters, the only cup that a Christian should lift with his hand, I'm talking to the older men in particular, but remember everybody needs to be exhorted. The older women are to be sober as well not given to much wine. So let's just go back to this and saying, say the Bible tells us the only cup that you should lift to your lips is the cup of blessing. The Bible speaks of a cup of blessing. You should ask yourself by using that concept, anything that you lift to your lips, you should say, is this something I can pray over and ask Jesus to bless it? Because the same 
epistle that uses the language of the cup of blessing. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. Later in that same chapter, it talks about the cup of devils. It says you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. And that's a principle. You can't be asking God to bless your life, to bless your food, to bless your future, to bless your job, to bless your mind, to bless your friends, to bless your family, while you're lifting the cup of the devil to your mouth. And don't forget that also in that same epistle, it is addressing not just the condition of intoxication that some would call smashed, if that still is a term they use, just really out, you know, however you put that, really smashed. It's not just talking about that, because remember, Paul speaks of some of the members in the church that had too much of the communion wine that they were becoming inebriated. Now, you wouldn't envision them passed out on the floor and, you know, conducting themselves in just the most outlandish ways, you know, jumping around on the seats and tossing their clothes in different directions and that sort of thing. But it was known that some of these members in Corinth, they're drinking too much of this and I can start to smell it on their breath and you can start to see it in their eyes and even their dispositions. They're not showing sobriety of mind. And so what I'm saying is, he's saying some are hungry, some are drunken, even in the church, which means that we're talking about staying away from the slightest sense of intoxication. That's what Jesus says. In fact, the Bible tells us don't look at wine when it is enticing, when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Proverbs 23 in verse 31. Let's apply this first of all literally. Did you hear what it says? This is in keeping with what we're talking about. We're talking about prohibition. We're saying the promise of salvation comes with prohibitions. Jesus doesn't welcome you into his kingdom and then say you can drink as much alcohol as you wish and you'll still get there. He says drunkards don't have any part in the kingdom of heaven. And so if you take God seriously, then you know what you don't do. Just like if you have an issue with pornography or some other matter, you know what you don't do? You don't look at it. William Gurnell, a Puritan, says, because looking may induce liking. You know, we heard the testimony in this assembly, not from someone in this church, but we were instructing against this testimony, of someone who confesses to be a Christian who went on a psychedelic trip. And you'll remember with me that how the steps led to that is he went to an unregenerate friend's house and he saw the mushrooms on the table and thought about it and said, I guess I will. Well, that's not sober-minded. Such a person shouldn't be testifying to the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, such a person should be repenting and taking a seat and learning how to sober up. Another Puritan makes the same point as does Gurnell. This is George Swinock. Relative to Proverbs 23 and verse 31, don't look at the wine, you know, especially when you want it. You know what I mean? That's when it's really red, when it sparkles in the cup, when, it, when you know it will go down so smoothly. You know, I don't know why you would be watching a football game to start with. Not that we're setting up laws, but I'm just saying I don't know why you would be to start with. But is it when you're, when you're watching the football game? Or I don't know why you would be playing cards in the first place. Not that we're making laws, but is it when you're playing cards? And it looks like, you know, this would go so nicely with these chips, this can of beer. 
Well, you've got a prohibition from the Savior that says, don't even look at it. So Swinock says, this idea of when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, he says, when it laughs in thy face, then shut thine eyes, lest it steal into thy heart. You know, when it's just playing with you. You know, it's, it's in the cup. It's just, And this can be applied in other ways. You let the Holy Spirit apply it to whatever struggle you might have in your life. But when that little intoxicating step is kind of laughing and playing with you, don't look at it because then it's going to get into your heart. We are ready to think, what hurt, what danger is there in beholding the wine in the glass, sparkling and brisky? But Solomon knew that from looking on it, men come to like it. From liking it to tasting. From tasting to a draught. From one draught to another. Till the man is metamorphosed into a beast. And that's the truth. Just ask Noah. Noah got intoxicated, and this elder man in the Church of Jesus Christ, I use the terms loosely, but to make the principle, you follow what I mean. He was a brother in Christ. I trust he still is. But you probably remember with me that Noah, after getting on the ark, he planted a vineyard, he drank too much wine, and he got drunk. And so Noah is supposed to be an older brother, but what is he? At that moment, he's just an old drunk that doesn't even know where his clothes are or what his children are doing. Why? Because he looked at it when it was red. But I want to shift slightly to bring us into the second part of this instruction by pointing out to you that not only did a Christian by the name of Noah, I understand that's a little bit anachronistic in the terminology, but you get my point. The believer by the name of Noah... He got too free, and he brought disrepute to the faith of Yahweh, and, and he brought shame to his family. You know, older men and young men, you're supposed to be growing up into older men. I guess that ought to be obvious. You should be concerned about bringing shame to your family. I mean, I, I have that in my spirit all the time. I don't want to bring shame to my family. More so, I don't want to bring shame to Jesus' church. I don't want to bring shame to Jesus' name. It's not like I, I just feel like God will judge me if I do, which I do feel that way, you know what I mean? But what I'm saying is I don't want to. I, there's something wrong with you if you don't have that in your spirit, that you don't want to, that it's shameful for you to think of bringing shame. You know what I'm saying? You know, for you to even think that you would, you feel so ashamed that you do something about it so that you don't do it. I might sound like a tongue twister, but I said something there. So what I'm pointing out to you is that the Corinthians did the same sort of thing that Noah did, but in a different way. And since I'm going to be enlarging on this point, I'll only give you the passage that captures it. Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm going to argue, for the sake of this study, you have gotten intoxicated. The language he uses is you're puffed up and you have not mourned. The idea being that not just Noah in his own vineyard after the flood was a Christian who should be walking with God. He drank too much wine, and then he brought a bad report. He brought disrepute upon the ways of the Lord. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you're puffed up. You're intoxicated. You're fermenting with spiritual foolishness and nonsense. You're not sober. 
And so this is what I want to speak about now and emphasize in the remainder of this study. That this exhortation to the older men to be sober is not just a prohibition against drinking literal fermented beverages. It is also the prohibition against being intoxicated with liberty. It's the idea that if you are an older man, you are supposed to be able to handle liberty without getting intoxicated. You should be able to be used of the Lord, be able to have some authority and some position in the church without losing control, without getting intoxicated and the whole liberty that God grants you ferments within your being and brings up pride and ways of living that are not sober in your thoughts and in your statements and in your behavior. I call this the freedom frenzy. The freedom frenzy. In other words, the aged men are to be exhorted to break the addiction to the freedom frenzy. This is the sort of thing where, you know, the apostles would establish elders in the church and men would be granted the freedom to bring forth their gifts and their various talents and so on. But as we know in Corinth, as I just read to you, and as has been true in church history, and this is why we need to speak about it, that there are those who cannot handle the liberty that God allows in the church. They don't stay sober-minded. They allow a little bit of liberty to become a license to do whatever they please. That's not being sober-minded. We need brothers who, be, who can be granted liberty, but can stay in control of who they are and what they are. I mean, are you not thankful, if I may put it this way, if this pastor who has been serving you for, what has it been now, 40-something years, that I haven't gotten so intoxicated with myself and so intoxicated with my ideas that I've just gone off into all directions at once and have, you know, put you into a cult-like environment or brought you into all different sorts of ideas where you're going to chase me on this religious tangent, that religious tangent... And yet, I come behind the pulpit, brothers and sisters, Sunday after Sunday, in some sense, having the freedom to tell you whatever I want. To make it seem like I know what the Bible says on any passage. Do you understand what I mean? How many teachings have I had to correct over the years where I got it wrong? Not very many. But what I'm trying to say is how many men come behind the pulpit and they teach week after week after week things they don't even know what they're talking about. Because they have the liberty to do so. Or here's somebody that gets saved and they say, I like to share a song. So we say, okay, praise the Lord. Go ahead and share a song. And you know, the first song, song they share is, is uh, it's okay. They're newly saved. It's, it's a little bit upbeat, a little bit rocky. But, you know, we're not going to set up laws. And I'm personally in favor of that. I'm not going to set up laws, you know, up, up, across the board on this sort of thing. But this person, let's say, I'm just making this up on the fly, but this is exactly what has happened in church history. This person is actually quite talented on whatever instrument, male or female, that that person is playing. And so next thing you know, they got a band. And next thing you know, they're entertaining the church with their rock music. And I don't know if the church understands what's going on here, but 
a little bit of liberty has intoxicated everybody and we've lost sober-mindedness in the house of God. And you should be asking yourself, this sort of ongoing behavior, this stuff that passes for worship, which is just pure entertainment and just rocking down the church, and many of the older men are doing it. And some of them do it to this day with their gray hair and they're quite happy about it. And I'm trying to say that this is the sort of thing that second, the second chapter of Titus is addressing. I'm saying, brothers and sisters, that older men need to be able to feel the liberty without pouring yourself another drink. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, I'll just use this since I looked over at my dear brother Stephen. Brother Stephen recently has been granted the opportunity to minister to this church by reading the scriptures to us at the beginning of our meetings. Well, that's a privilege. That's a liberty. And if you noticed thus far, and he's not planning on doing it, but he hasn't got intoxicated with it. He's not giving us many teachings as he's granted the opportunity to read, the, to read from the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I'm saying that older men need to manifest the ability to have some liberty. And then when you start feeling the liberty, you've got to be able to control yourself and stay sober. An Irish minister by the name of Henry Cook says this, not merely habitual drunkards from wine are being addressed by Titus, but persons intoxicated with pride and self-will beyond reasoning and regardless of warning. I'm going to give you a few examples of this in the Bible rather rapidly. That is to say, we won't digress into the background and the context of these different situations much, but you reflect on them on your own and you'll see this is what we're talking about. I bring Israel itself as a nation to your attention. First of all, Israel got intoxicated with the very liberty that God had given them. They were in the house of bondage. God came and saved them. They like got intoxicated with their salvation, quote unquote, and thought they were free to sin now, I suppose. The way that it's addressed in the scriptures is found in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 15. It says, but Jeshuan, which is a term for Israel, but Jeshuan waxed fat and kicked. If you understand what's going on in that remark, you're looking exactly at what we're talking about here. To the extent that elder men were involved in that, and there were some, they got their liberty, and they felt that liberty. And it's okay that you do feel the liberty, brothers and sisters, amen? To some extent, sisters, you know, you have the liberty to pray and to prophesy in the church. We want to hear what you have to say. You have liberty, but you, you need to know how to be sober-minded. When you feel that liberty, you know, you feel you're being used of the Lord, you know, and, and all of a sudden now you have to have a ministry, or all of a sudden now you take over the meeting, or all of a sudden now you're the expert on whatever issue, and you talk over every other sister or whatever, and don't let them to have a word edgewise. You understand what I'm saying? Or you're starting to instruct the pastor, or however this works. There I was focusing on the sisters, but you know what I'm trying to say. I'm saying God lets us have liberty. You, you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is a well of living water springing up within you. You're filled with the Holy Spirit as opposed to being drunk with wine wherein is excess. And there's a certain bubbling up and liberty that comes with that. 
But when you start feeling that liberty, do you understand? Even the anointing, you start feeling the liberty of the anointing. You got to do better than Samson and stay sober minded in order to make sure that you have behavior that is becoming. That is to say, that is fitting and matches sound doctrine. Jesus never got beside himself in a sinful and unholy, irreligious way. So Israel, not too long after they got out of the house of bondage, the Bible says that they waxed fat and kicked. And then about 700 years later, a little before they were going to experience the chastening of God through the hands of the king of Assyria, we read these words. God says to Israel, Woe to the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. Not that they saw it that way, but he's saying, I'm predicting this, I'm prophesying it. Your glorious beauty, your self-vauntedness, you know, your pride, it's going to be a fading flower. Which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Well, there again, each of these situations is so instructive in its own. I'm going to continue to give you a sampling to make the point. Um, but there you have this idea of the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim. You know, he's making the point that they're intoxicated with themselves. Here's God's people brought into God's land, enjoying God's blessings. Amen. And but they're not walking with the Lord anymore. They're doing whatever they feel like while they go to temple. And he's saying, you crown of pride, you drunkards, you're overcome with wine. And it's not just literal wine he's speaking of. Another example, Haman got promoted and became bloated with himself. You remember that Ahasuerus promoted Haman. But Haman couldn't stay sober-minded about it. If you read about Haman in Esther, he is just a man that is intoxicated with himself. He feels like he's so important. He wants everybody to bow and, you know, pay attention to him. And when Mordecai gets some attention, he's mortified to see that Mordecai gets any attention beyond him. That's not a sober-minded person. And how did he get there? He felt the liberty. What do I mean? Ahasuerus promoted him. And Haman felt the liberty, but he couldn't hold it. He couldn't hold his own. Or to state differently, very unwisely, he took another drink of liberty. You know, himself. Poured himself another glass and drank it again. You know what I'm saying? When you start feeling that liberty and you start noticing, I'm getting a little off here, you need to get away from that liberty, quote unquote, that is working at the moment. Once upon a time, Saul of Kish was very humble. He hid himself when he was to be selected as being the king. He literally hid himself so he couldn't be found. But then evidently at some point he stood up and he realized, hey, I'm head and shoulders above the rest, which he was. And he got intoxicated to the extent where God said, I've chosen David to replace you. He said, well, nice for you, God, but I think I'll kill David. That's just a non-sober-minded man. What's going on there, Saul? He's intoxicated. Sadly, we can't pass over David, though. Once upon a time, there was a shepherd boy, sweet psalmist of Israel, on the hills of Bethlehem, playing his harp, 
beating up the bears and the lions whenever they went after the sheep, taking out Goliath, and just loving Jesus with all his heart. But then he found himself elevated within Israel. He became the king of Israel, got a castle he could stand on and walk out on the parapets or whatever it was in the nighttime, and saw a beautiful woman, and he poured himself another drink. And he said, I'm the king of Israel. Obviously, I deserve this. After all that I've done for Israel, a little Bathsheba here, a little Bathsheba there is just proper payment. And he went on with his actions, feeling fully entitled. As a matter of fact, he was drunk. He was drunk on himself. He needed to go get detoxed, which God did. He brought him into his detox and he went through his redrawals and all the rest of it and sobered up. Thanks be to God. Gehazi was elevated by Elijah to be, you know, his right-hand man. And he got intoxicated. He couldn't handle the liberty. So that on one occasion, when somebody by the name of Nahum was offering some money and Elijah said, we don't take money when we minister the Lord's services. But Gehazi said, well, I'll go run after it. I can get away with it because I'm Elijah's right-hand man. You can make the connections as you meditate. Ananias and Sapphira, they became a part of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, they had some property. They knew that they could sell it. They could give some money and they got happy about all that they could do. And wow, look what we're doing for the church. And they got intoxicated because they decided they could lie in the process of doing it. And it would be okay because after all, they're Ananias and Sapphira. And look what they're giving to the church until they dropped dead. And God sobered them up. Simon Magus. Once upon a time, he was a great man. You know, outside of the Christian faith. I guess he always wanted to be a great man. man. Lots of men do. That's called pride. That's why when you get saved, there are promises and prohibitions. The, the promise is, I will save your sorry soul. The prohibition is, don't take the glory to yourself. And so Simon Magus got saved. And he got a taste of salvation. And he saw the attention that Peter and John were enjoying. So he thought, how much would it cost for me to buy some of this religious attention? And if you remember, Peter says, Simon, you're drunk. You're intoxicated with religion. Yeah, you can come into the house of God. As far as we know, you're believing. That's what it says about Simon. He said he believed also. As far as they knew, he was a believer. And he got some liberty. He got to watch what God was doing. He got to be right beside Peter and John, you following me? And then in that experience, he started to feel more of the liberty and feel more of the possibilities. You understand what I'm saying? And some churches just promote this, brothers and sisters. They don't have you take partake of the communion of the bread and cup in a spiritual way. They pour, they pour out servings of spiritual intoxication. And so in this case, that would have looked like saying, well, I can't sell it to you, Simon Magus, but we can bring you into our workshop on how to work miracles. We can help advance your ministry by teaching you how to work miracles or whatever else you want to do. Well, the time fails us to speak of Dathan and Abiram, Aaron, Miriam, Samson, Nabal, Jeroboam, Uzziah, Judas, Diotrephes, and many such like who are in the hall of freedom frenzy. Every one of those individuals I just read to you conducted themselves at some point or another where they started feeling the liberty and they lost their sobriety. You remember Aaron and Miriam, for example? I mean, they started feeling like, hey, we're the servants of the Lord too, so 
we could just start criticizing Moses without a second thought almost. You know, oh, he married an Ethiopian woman. Well, we know the mind of the Lord on that. Really? How much did you pray about it? Uh, you know, did, did you ask Moses before you started criticizing him as to whether or not he got permission from the Lord to marry this woman, for example? Samson, of course, Nabal, you know, Nabal, he's a genius. He knows how he can walk over God's servant, no problem. Why? Because he's, you know what I'm saying? This is, this is what we're seeing here, Jeroboam, Uzziah. The Bible says about Uzziah, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. He wasn't sober-minded, was he? God started blessing him. He started feeling it. And instead of staying sober, he started pouring himself more of that feeling, more of that liberty, more of the me-ism. Let's pick the rest of this up in a subsequent study, dear brethren, so that we have time to be meditative before the Lord and examine our hearts before we ourselves today enjoy the liberty of the communion of the bread and cup. Amen.